All right, here's the plan today. My, the plan today is at the end of the service, we're going to do the baptism. Otherwise, I'd have to preach to you in wet clothes. And uh, so I'm not making you a promise, but my attempt is going to be that we finish a few minutes early and we get ready to do the baptism. We've already got water in the tank, so we're ready to go. All right? Praise God. Really would encourage you all to stay and witness this uh, really special event. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Titus. Titus. Titus is after 2 Timothy and just before Philemon. Now, we've been talking about, last week we talked about knowing our time. Knowing our time. And... Um, Discerning the, the times and the culture that we live in. And we talked about how the church is going through um, a lot of transition. The, the church in America is, is really in major transition right now. A lot of people are trying to figure out why what we've done for the last 50, 60 years has not worked. And um, so there's all kinds of theories out there, but I'm kind of a simplistic person. To me, uh, God gave us the best plan around when he gave us the scripture. And Jesus um, gave us a mission. We call it the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're going we're gonna to obey that commission today when we baptize Jacob. So... We're going to spend some time, we're going to actually go, go through the book of Titus. We won't go through all of it today. We're going to kind of begin today. But I want, to, I want to just put a statement out here for you. The kingdom of God is, the measure of success in the kingdom of God is not the level of attendance in our buildings. The measure of success in the kingdom of God is the level of transformation that takes place in, their li- in, in our lives. Now, every pastor who cares about what he does and is serious about preaching the gospel, you know, my preference would be that all of these chairs would be full and we're overflowing out into the parking lot. But what's more important to me than that is that there is a real transformation taking place in your life. And so it's real important for us as believers and especially as leaders of churches to really discern correctly and, and to stick with the things that God has revealed um, to us in His Word. I always kind of say this jokingly, but it, it really was true. Jesus had a ministry on earth of diminishing return. Uh, I'm Think of John 6 when Jesus tells him, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me and my kingdom. And it says that from that day, many turned and followed Jesus no more for this was a hard saying. And so we don't, we don't preach and teach things to just be hard or to turn people away, but how many of you know that the truth sometimes challenges us? And we should be willing to preach the truth, and we should be willing to be challenged by the truth. And the reason we should be willing to have that happen is because Jesus says in John 8, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So we don't want to live in, in 
deception or just, you know, like the ostrich with his head in the sand. We need to be discerning what's taking place. And so this is a huge conversation that's taking place in the church in America right now about what's, what's happening in our culture and what these trends are, are leading us to. But here's the thing about transformation. As the depth and the breadth of transformation increases in our churches, then the assembling of ourselves together is not going to be decreasing. The assembling of ourselves together should be increasing if we truly understand why we're assembling. Now, if we misunderstand why we're assembling, then this is why we begin to see trends like we're seeing in the American church over the last several decades. And I read some numbers to you last week, and I won't, I won't repeat all that, but I will, I will make note of one that was significant, and that is the overwhelming majority of, uh, of people in this generation born between 1980 and 2000 who believe that the church has absolutely no relevance to their life. That, that is a huge number of people. And I believe the reason that that belief is there is because the church hasn't done a very good job of really communicating and teaching truth so that they know what is true, so they know why we come here, and they also know why we don't come here. Um, And so we need to resist the temptation to do things that are culturally popular at the expense of faithfully teaching and living the gospel, which is the power of God, Romans. For the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is God's power. It's the power of God to effect real transformation in our lives through salvation. And so we need to be faithful to uh, the scripture, faithful to the gospel. So we need to be courageous enough to reject those things that have the appearance of success, but do not have the lasting fruit of success. So parents, grandparents, you know, I'm a parent and a grandparent. And something that's really important for me is not only that my children are serving God, not because of my, not out of my faith, not because I'm the pastor and and we made them come to church. We, We always try to condition our kids, you don't have to come to church, you get to come to church. It's not, a, it's not a necessity, it's a privilege that we find joy in participating in. And now as a, as, a, as a guy whose kids are grown and I have two grandchildren, one of my greatest desires is to one day see my grandchildren living out their own faith. Not out of a sense of obligation, not because they're afraid they're going to go to hell if they don't go to church, none of that. Because I'm going to tell you right now, those, those realities, those tactics that's the, that the church has used, they don't work. Uh, that generation who says the church is absolutely irrelevant to my life have absolutely no fear that they're going to go to hell because they don't come to church. In coming to church and assembling together shouldn't be about whether we're going to go to hell or not. Your salvation really shouldn't be about whether you are or are not going to go to hell one day. Your salvation should be about your love for Jesus Christ. And that love for Jesus Christ comes from where? It comes from His love for you. First John says, he, we love Him because He first 
loved us. And so we see there's always this temptation to, to do things because this is kind of the culture we, we live in. You know, we can look at the culture that has developed in America and we see that the answer to our problems is always another program. If you just do a quick survey of history and you look at the number of government programs that existed just say four decades ago versus how many exist now, at all levels, you're going to see this explosion. Well, part of that is because that's kind of, that's kind of the culture we've adopted. You know, we just need another good idea. We just need something, you know, if, if I just come up with a good idea, then, you know, this problem could be solved. Well, yeah, that may be true or it may not be true, but but do we want to just solve problems temporarily or do we want to get to the root of things and find out what's really going on in effect real and lasting transformation? And so this is what the church really should be about. When we look at our congregations, when we, we talk about coming here and discerning the body of Christ in, in Corinthians, when Paul says to the Corinthians, discern the body of Christ, he's not just talking about discern the bread and the cup that you're fixing to eat and drink. He's saying, hey, you Corinthians, look around you. Look at those who are rich among you. Look at those who are poor among you. Look at those who have much. Look at those who have little. Discern the body of Christ and live your life in such a way that you're not excluding one group or another for whatever reason. But understand that we are all part of the body of Christ, rich and poor, great and small. It doesn't matter. And this is what Paul is saying when he says to the Corinthians, discern the body of Christ. And so that, that exhortation is for us still today. We need to be able to look around and discern the body of Christ and look at the, the diversity that exists in the body. From the very youngest of us to the, to the most elder of us. From those that are struggling mightily financially to those who have come to a place where they're comfortable financially because they've worked hard and they've made wise decisions. Some people maybe just had unfortunate series of events to happen in their life and, and they're in this situation. But can we discern the body of Christ? And can we look and can we look at everybody and can we value each and every person? So this culture of trying to come up with a program or a good idea to solve our problems, uh, to deal with our issues or to get us back on the right track, this is something that's become very common in our culture from the church all the way to the highest levels of government in Washington, D.C. And so what God, what God did when he, when he spoke in the very beginning and he said, let there be light, he didn't create a program. He didn't say, I'm going to create a light program, then I'm going to create a, a sun and moon and star program, then I'm going to create a tree program and a land program and a water program, and then on the sixth day I'm going to create a humanity program, and then we've got the animals. No. God created what? He created life. I mean, when he first said those words, let there be light, he was creating life. This was his purpose. We see the crowning um, achievement of that when we get to day six and God creates man in his own image. Nothing else in the creation was created in the image of God except for man. 
And we see that God did everything he did. This was about the life that he created. It's about living. It's about life. And so Christianity is not about a series of programs. Christianity is about a lifestyle. We talk about changing the culture of the church, and this is kind of what's going on right now in in the church universal. The culture of the church is changing right now. And the reason the culture of the church is changing is because people are beginning to recognize, they're going back to the Scripture and they're saying, you know what? What Jesus died for, what Jesus promised to build was not a bunch of, uh, of, of, of things. He died to establish a living organism called the church that has a culture of life. The gospel is not about rules and regulations that you obey in order to be sure that you go to heaven one day. The gospel is about your lifestyle. It's about everything from your time here on Sunday morning to you driving to work on Monday morning. I mean, it's about everything. It's about raising your family. It's about doing your job. It's about everything that we do. We can't, we, we must not compartmentalize our lives any longer. And so, this call to discern our culture. Uh, let's go to Titus. And we see that in Titus chapter 1. We're just going to actually go verse by verse through Titus 1 here. In the next week uh, on Family Weekend, we're going to introduce we're going to introduce something to you um, that is modeled after what Paul's letter to Titus here. And it's not a program. Some could call it a program, but it's not meant to be a program. It's really meant to create a lifestyle and a culture within the church. And so that's going to be for next week. This week we're going we're to attempt to go through Titus chapter 1 and lay a foundation before we get to Titus chapter 2. So Titus chapter 1, let's read together. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth from which truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began but has in due time manifested his word through preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God according to the commandment of God our savior to Titus a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are, lack, that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now we're going to stop right there. I want to reread chapter uh, verse 5 to you. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. So Paul's writing this letter, this 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, these are called the pastoral letters. Paul wrote these letters to these pastors. Timothy was a pastor. Titus was a pastor. And at one time, uh, Paul and Titus went to Crete together, and Paul left Titus there. And he's writing to Titus now, and he's telling him, Titus... This is my command to you. This is my instruction to you that you 
which set in order those things which are lacking. I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. Let's go to verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to faith, to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Father, we just ask you right now to open our hearts and open our minds by your Spirit. That God, we wouldn't try to carnally understand these things. Lord, the Scripture declares that Uh, The carnal mind of man cannot discern the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. So God, we ask you that you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds and give us discernment of your Word, which is Spirit and which is life to us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, a bondservant. Now, um, this word bondservant is, is a word, a Greek word, that means the lowest form of servitude. This is what Paul called himself. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he regularly called himself, along with proclaiming his apostleship, he, he almost always referred to himself in this way, a bondservant. The lowest form of slave in servitude. Paul says, this is who I am. I am God's slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. According to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. Now, I want you to look at this phrase, according to the faith of God's elect. This, this term, the faith, is a term that means the common faith of those who are God's elect, or those who are God's children, those who are the people of God, those who have been born again, those who have been delivered from from death, translated into life in the Son. And so what Paul is saying is, is, I am an apostle according to the faith of God's elect. Not just any faith. And we're going to see as we go through this letter that Paul is addressing some things that are happening in the church there in Crete, where you've got these people who are calling themselves believers who are calling themselves followers of Christ. Some are Judaizers, some are not. They're Gentiles. Many of them were Judaizers, and they were like they were in all the other places Paul dealt with, trying to say, you know what? It's not good enough that you just trust in Jesus Christ. You've got to keep the law. You've got to do this. You've got to do that as well. And so Paul is addressing this, And he says, listen, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect. There is a common faith that we have, and it's not the faith these guys are talking to you about. The faith they're declaring is not the common faith. It's not the faith of the apostles. It's not the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. They are talking to you about a different faith, another faith. Gospel. And so Paul makes this declaration according to the faith of God's elect. Those who belong to Christ have a common faith. And this is the faith that Paul, as a bondservant and as an apostle of Jesus Christ, walked according to. He lived, he walked according to this common faith. And so this is the one faith. In Ephesians 4, verse 5, Paul makes this declaration. He says, There is one faith. Faith. This is the one faith Paul declares in Ephesians 4 5. So, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and pay attention to the ands because they're 
connecting thoughts here, right? And the acknowledgement of the truth. And the acknowledgement of the truth. So the common faith must manifest itself in the life of the believer through what? Through an acknowledgement of the truth. We're not going to just be able to say, we've got, hey, I've got faith, I believe in God. Well, the Bible says the devils believe in God and tremble, but the devils are not of the faith. They're not of the common faith. Uh, That is the saving faith. That is the faith of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with this faith comes an acknowledgement of the truth. Christ declared himself in John 14, 6. Remember, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He says in John 14, 6, I am the truth. So truth is more than just a philosophy. It's more than just a, a set of ideas. The scripture, Jesus himself declared himself personally to be the truth. And so, if that is true, and it is, by the way, whether you believe it or not, it is true, then the truth is embodied in who? It's embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we come into this faith, this common faith, the faith of God's elect, there will be an acknowledgement of what? Of the truth. How is it going to be acknowledged? It's got to be acknowledged more than just verbally. Paul is not just talking about a verbal acknowledgement. A verbal acknowledgement is fine, but it's got to be more than just a verbal acknowledgement. It's got to become a lifestyle. Our walk, listen church, our walk is our greatest acknowledgement of the truth. If I tell you stealing is wrong, but I'm in Walmart every day shoplifting, it doesn't really matter what I say, does it? If I tell you that men ought to be faithful to their wives, but I'm out there running around on mine, it, it doesn't really matter what I say because my walk is communicating something totally contrary. So Paul is saying, look, according, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Here he's linking the acknowledgement of the truth. Yes, we can verbally acknowledge it, but he's linking it with godliness. In other words, this faith should manifest into a lifestyle that communicates who Christ is. It should communicate the love of God, the love of Christ, the nature of Christ, the character of Christ, not just in my words, but in my actions, in my walk. So with the faith of God's elect which accords with godliness, with the faith of God's elect, there will be an acknowledgement of the truth which will accord with godliness. In other words, true faith in Christ is going to bring an acknowledgement of truth that will be most notable in the way we live our lives, in the way we walk out our salvation. Amen? A godly lifestyle. Now, this is why we say discipleship is not just a eight-hour class you go through. Oh, you completed the discipleship class. Now we're going to give you the certificate. Now you are a disciple. No. It's more than an eight-hour program. It's more than an 80-hour program. It's more than an eight-year program. Listen, this is our life. This, we're walking this out 
our whole lives while we're on this earth. And personally, I believe we're going to walk it out even beyond this temporal time on this earth. In eternity, we will manifest the nature and the character of Christ because Christ is our life. For all eternity, we will manifest these truths and these realities because because we have become partakers of His life. And so a godly lifestyle is not someone who is perfect. Please hear me. When we talk about godliness or you living a godly lifestyle, I'm not talking about someone who is perfect because we are not perfect. We are so far from perfect. I remind you of what Caleb said as he introduced the communion today. We don't come to this table because we're worthy. We come to this table because, because Christ has made us worthy by His blood. If we could be perfect, we wouldn't have needed a Savior to begin with, right? And this is exactly what Paul writes to the Galatians. Hey, if righteousness comes by keeping the law, then Christ died in vain. There's no, there's no point in us trusting in Christ if we can do this ourselves. So a godly lifestyle is not someone who is perfect, but someone who is being perfected. And in a sense, in Colossians, Paul writes to the Colossians, you are complete in him, but yet we are being completed, right? We are saved, and yet we are being saved, the Bible says. They're both true. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12, and 13. But that doesn't mean we're trying to achieve salvation. It means we have salvation and we're working that salvation out. Why? Because we're not perfect. We're still being perfected. God is still molding us and shaping us, praise God. And he does this by his grace because of what his son has done. So this is not achieved by our will in the power of the flesh, godliness is achieved by our surrender in the power of the Spirit. Godliness is not about making your flesh behave a certain way. Godliness is about you surrendering to the Spirit of God and allowing God now to mold and shape you. Will your, will your flesh behave certain ways? It should, yes. It should behave in ways that are consistent with who God is. But you know, I go back to my standby analogy. My dog didn't become a dog when he started barking. My dog barked because he was a dog. You didn't become a sinner when you started sinning. And you didn't become righteous when you started behaving righteous. You started living righteously. You started living according, acknowledging the truth and in accord with godliness because God transformed you. He caused you to be born again. He gave you the life of His Son. He put His Spirit on the inside of you. You became a brand new creation. And now out of that new creation, out of that life of Christ, out of that resurrection life that you now possess by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, now you're going to live in accord with godliness. Is it going to happen automatically overnight? Absolutely not. Are you still going to have struggles? Yes, you're still going to have struggles. But here's the promise God gives us. A good tree will produce good fruit. And when we're struggling, this is the beautiful picture of John 15, of the vine and the branches. The vine dresser knows how to prune the vine in such a way to make it more fruitful. The point of pruning is not to kill the vine. The point of pruning is to make the vine fruitful. When God begins to prune our lives, he's not trying to kill us. He's trying to make us more fruitful. That's a good thing. Now, pruning can be painful, right? 
But if we have faith in God, if we have faith in his promises that he works all things together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose, then we know that even the painful pruning processes we go through sometimes are for the good and for the glory of God. Amen? And so, I'm, a, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the, to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. It's going to become a lifestyle. And we achieve that as we surrender in the power of the Spirit. And godliness is a product of the Spirit as we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Verse 2 here. In hope of eternal life. Listen, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the truth of God's elect, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Man, this is a powerful verse. I want you to see something here. In hope. If I were to say to you, I hope, I hope we get to go to Fiesta, Texas this summer, what would that communicate to you? Would that communicate that we are absolutely no questions asked without any shadow of a doubt going to Fiesta, Texas this summer? Or does it communicate that we may or we may not go to Fiesta, Texas? I hope we get to go to Fiesta, Texas this summer. That communicates doubt, doesn't it? See, here's where we get into trouble. We define hope in the Bible by what we have come to believe and know hope is in our own modern-day language. This is, the, this is the danger of trying to interpret the Scripture based on our own cultural norms and the way we understand words. You guys know grammar matters, right? I mean, I know it was the part of school that probably most of us hated. I actually liked English. Um, but I wasn't real good at this grammar thing, you know. Um, but, but now, uh, in writing and speaking and studying the Scripture, for instance, I realize how absolutely important grammar is. So when Paul says, in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, it's not like, I hope we get to go to Fiesta, Texas this summer. Listen, hope, biblical hope, Paul says in Romans, hope speaks of that which is not seen. Hope and faith are very, very similar. Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith speaks of that which we have not seen, but we're hoping for. Hope, Paul says to the Romans, speaks of those things which are not seen, if we can see it and we can touch it, why do we have hope for it? We don't need to hope for it. We've got it. It's ours. I'm holding it in my hand. I don't need to hope for what I've got. But hope, biblical hope, it speaks of that which is not seen, that which I, in a tangible way, hold in my hand yet, but the promise of it is sure. So when Paul says here in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, he's not saying, well, gosh, I hope we have eternal life someday. 
You know, if you guys just really walk godly and you acknowledge the truth and you just keep all your I's dotted and T's crossed and, you know, get all your grammar right, then, you know, I hope you make it one day. That's not what he's saying. He said, you have the hope. I'm preaching this gospel. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm declaring these things, this common faith that we have, this acknowledgement of the truth that accords to godliness and hope and the hope of eternal life. It's a powerful statement. When we speak about hope, we often talk about it in a context that carries with it a sense of uncertainty. I hope it rains today. In other words, it may or it may not rain today, but I hope it does. It could rain or maybe it won't rain. But biblical hope does not carry any sense of uncertainty with it. The hope of resurrection is not, gosh, I hope I'm resurrected one day. The hope of resurrection is we will be resurrected. Why? Because we have already entered into resurrection life through the new birth in Jesus Christ. We will be resurrected because he was resurrected, because we have been born again, because we have become children of God. I have the hope, not an uncertain hope, but a sure hope. This is the hope of resurrection. This is the hope of eternal life that Paul is speaking about here. It doesn't carry any uncertainty with it whatsoever. The hope of resurrection we have is not, I hope I will be resurrected one day. It is, I will most certainly be resurrected one day because of the hope because of the certain promise that I have in Christ. I don't see my resurrection yet. As a matter of fact, Paul says this earthly tent is perishing day by day. Hey, I'm 51 years old. I can't do the things I used to do when I was 21 years old. Heck, I can't even do the things I did when I was 41 years old. I can almost do the things I could do when I was 41 years old. Man, I'm going to say I can, okay? I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm just going to believe that I can, okay? But, but listen, the hope we have is not an uncertain hope. It's a, it's a certain hope based on the sure promises of God. So when you read the hope of eternal life in the Bible, when you read the hope of resurrection, don't think of hope in our modern vernacular. Well, it may or it may not. Think of hope biblically, the way it was communicated in the Scripture. Man, this is speaking of something that is a done deal. It's as certain as the air you're breathing right now. You just don't see it yet, but it will. It is. This is the hope that we have. In hope of eternal life is not a phrase that carries any doubt with it, but a certain promise of eternal life which God God, who cannot lie, promise. Now, that, this is an interesting phrase, too. Let's read the verse again. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now, I know some of you probably are thinking, well, but Pastor Jeff, on Easter Sunday, you, you told us that with God, all things are possible. So, if all things are possible with God, then surely God can lie, because right? No. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. God who cannot lie. In the Greek, the phrase here in the Greek literally says, God, the unliable God. The unliable God. I like that. God, the unliable God, promised beforehand. God can't lie any more than light can be darkness. 
Because lying is contrary to the nature of God. It's contrary to the very essence of who He is. Just like light and darkness are contrary to one another because in essence and nature and everything, they are not the same. They cannot be... Darkness can't be light and light can't be darkness. Now, here's something that's really amazing. Ephesians 5.8. Paul says to the Ephesians, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You know what he did? You know what? We understand the gospel. Here's how that is true. God killed the darkness when it was crucified with Christ and he raised it up in a new nature called light. You once were darkness. That was your nature, but God killed that nature through the cross of Jesus Christ and now he has raised you up in resurrection life. You're no longer darkness. Walk, therefore, as children of light. See, it's got to be more than just what we say. It's got to become the very expression of our lifestyle. God, the unliable God, has promised us, has given to us the hope of eternal life. Verse 3, but has in due time. When did he give us that? Promised before time began. Well, I shouldn't skip over that because that's kind of important too. If God gave you that promise before time began, that was, were you here before time began? Were you walking around on earth before time began? No, you weren't. So the promise of eternal life that he gave you is not contingent on you. The promise is contingent on who? On God. Why is the hope of eternal life certain without any doubt? Because the hope of eternal life is a hope which God, who cannot lie, has promised before time began. Before time began means the promise of eternal life was made before we were made. That means the promise of eternal life is certain, not because of you and me, but because of God, who is the unliable God. Hallelujah. Verse 3, and we're going to end in verse 3. Well, we're going to end in verse 5, but I'm going to skip over to verse 5 from verse 3. But has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Has in due time, that word time there, there's two Greek words for time. One's chronos and one's kairos. Chronos is like a chronology. The word chronos goes one, two, three. That's a chronology. Kairos is an appointed time. It's a special time. It's a time that God, before time began, before there was chronology, before there was time, God says there is going to come a point in time when I'm going to appoint something very special to happen. This is what this word time is right here in, in Titus 1.3. Which was, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. This is why preaching is so important. God has ordained that through the preaching of the word, his word would be manifest. Who is his word? In the beginning was the word, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And if, listen to me, church. If Jesus Christ... If Jesus Christ doesn't manifest himself in your heart, if he doesn't appear to you, so to speak, in your heart, you can't be saved. And God has ordained in his time, for his reasons, 
that the word would be manifest through preaching. Now, it doesn't have to be me preaching, but the declaration of the word, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the word has been ordained that through the preaching of the gospel that the power of God to salvation is manifest. It is through preaching that God will manifest his word. What God ordained and promised before time began, he has appointed to make manifest through the preaching of the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now this goes to my point. This is why it is so important for the church to return to the preaching of the word and the preaching of the gospel. We have departed from those things and gone into all of these things trying to attract people, trying to entertain people, trying to just get people in our building. If we can get them here, then I, listen, I can give you a website today. You could spend literally thousands of dollars how to get people in the front door and keep them from going out the back door. I mean, there's, there's programs and seminars and things out there that, that if you can just get them in, I'll show you how to keep them in. Listen, I believe I'm preaching a gospel that's more powerful than that. If you aren't captured by the gospel, if you're not captured by Jesus Christ, then there's not any program, there's not any entertainment, there's not anything I'm going to be able to do that's going to keep you because all you're going to do is grow tired. And if we don't have brighter lights and better fog machines and bigger things, then you're just going to... But if... God captures your heart with the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the preaching of his word, and your heart has truly been, listen to me, your heart has truly been changed and transformed. There is not anything that will suffice for you except Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's it. So let's skip over to verse 5, and then we're going to close, and we're going to do something really fun. For this reason... For this reason, I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking. One of the things that was lacking was an adherence to. You had all these people coming in preaching another gospel, another way to salvation. Well, yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you got to add this to it. You got to do this with it. You got to. And Paul says, "Look, Timothy, Titus, I put you in Crete that you would set things in order." Appoint elders, and this is where we're going to pick up next Sunday, okay? And we're going to, we're going to go on down and, and lead on down to Titus chapter 2. So we'll leave off at Titus chapter 1, verse 5, and we'll pick up there next, next week. All right? Praise God. Okay, so come back. Bring a friend, okay? And all right, now here, are you ready? Do you need to change? You're ready. I need to change, okay? So I'm going to, it won't take me long. I'm going to go back there and change real quick. And, uh, and then these guys are going to get um, all the stuff out of the way so we can pull that curtain back and you can see what's actually.